Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and I have two guests on today's episode. Uh, I'll be talking to Kat Kinsman, the author of High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, and Andrea Peterson, whose book is On Edge, A Journey Through Anxiety. I'm delighted to have you both here today. Thanks. Thanks for having us. There's a lot of similarities in your stories. I mean, both of these are memoirs about living with anxiety, but there's also a lot of differences, too. And I think that as over the course of this conversation, there'll be a lot of interesting points where we can sort of bounce off of each other and, and talk about your experiences. But I want to start with Andrea. Your memoir starts with one of your first really serious anxiety attacks when you were an undergraduate at, at Michigan. That's right. That's really when anxiety became crippling for me. I mean, if I look back after, you know, now looking back on sort of my life, I can see where things started earlier, but it was in college when I was a sophomore at the University of Michigan when I had a, it was a sort of a pivotal moment when anxiety really sort of took control of my life. I remember it very vividly because I was going to register for classes and I was in this kind of 1940s building on campus looking, this is pre-web days, so I was looking at a wall with sheets of dot matrix printer paper on it that detailed which classes were open. And I was fine. And, and then all of a sudden I wasn't. I mean, my heart rate just skyrocketed. I felt really short of breath. I broke out in a cold sweat. I had visual changes where the words were literally kind of dipping and buckling. And I was just gripped by this terror, this certainty that I was about ready to die. I was about to die. And I came home. The feeling didn't really abate. And my boyfriend brought me home where I, my parents lived about 90 minutes away. And I pretty much stayed on the sofa for the next five weeks, kind of with what I now know was a panic attack, but it was a panic attack that didn't really go away. It sort of had ebbs and flows, but it was, it just, life, it stopped everything. And that must sound really familiar to you, Catherine. <laughs> that, that, that absolutely does, though it's, you know, I have a combination of anxiety and depression. So if I find myself going into a particular spiral, now I can step aside and uh, sort of critique myself as it's happening. It doesn't stop the physical symptoms from happening, but I know that, you know, these things are going to happen. I don't exactly know when it's going to stop, but, you know, I'm thinking the last really bad spiral that I had, or, uh, no, yes, I've had some bad ones since then, but the one that was memorable to me, especially, that really made me think I, I needed to really readdress how I deal with anxiety, I, w I used to work at CNN, and I would go on and do these food segments, and I had gone on, I just found out about it that morning, I, you know, learned all these things about beta carotene, and Nazis, and carrots, and all sorts of strange things. And I had done my homework and I thought, oh good, you know, I have my, my talking points ready. I am armed. I have my TV makeup on. I have all of the things that make me feel safe. I thought for just, I, I, I bobbled my words at the beginning of the interview. And it was, uh, with the anchor was in Atlanta. I was in New York. So I couldn't see them on the monitor. I only had them in my ears. And I was convinced that I was just frozen on live television and that I had come back and 
and babbled my words and all this and was convinced that I had utterly failed. And we uh, came back, finished the segment, and I sent a note to the producers and to the anchors. I'm so sorry I screwed that up. They're like, what are you talking about? That was fine. But I, it started me down the spiral. Later in that day, I had to interview somebody about a completely different topic. And then a friend of mine was in town who sort of agitates me. And then I, was, I had to be on stage for something that night. And then I took the train home with a, pers- with a friend of mine who was having a, a bipolar episode. And it was just, I was absorbing things and I not dealing with my own body very well. And for about like you said, several weeks, I didn't sleep where my husband was incredibly concerned because I was almost walking into walls from sleeplessness and unable to really soothe myself. And we were in the car and he said, you please, please, please get yourself some help. And I started seeing a new therapist who was able to just hit my reset button. But I, I don't like feeling out of control. And I just, I thought, good God, this monster is going to eat me. Andrea has a line in, in her book, about anxiety being the anticipation of pain and what you're talking about in terms of how this spiral started for you you also write cat about how your terror has a hair trigger that your anticipation of pain or failure doesn't really take much to set it off and in particular as as you described in this episode you think you've screwed up when no one else thinks you've screwed up and it just snowballs from there this is how the anxious brain is wired. We are so cruel to ourselves. And, you know, I've used the sort of comparison before that people talk about depression as a black dog, sorry, black dog of depression. Anxiety is this feral cat that comes out and will just jump at you out of nowhere off the top of a cabinet and, uh, and just sink its claws into you. And sometimes you can shake it off and sometimes you can't. I know what a lot of my triggers are, so I can prepare for certain of them. But like just last night, I I walked into a party full of people and colleagues who I absolutely love and I was pinned into place because the uh, the crowd was just so intense and I felt the sweat starting to prickle up. It was probably 40 degrees outside and I'd been freezing on the sidewalk and I thought, I have to leave. And luckily, I'm so public at this point about this that my friends can say like, okay, we're going to get you out of here now. And they were kind enough to, to do that. So I'm, I'm much better about self-care. And I didn't try to muscle that one through and stay there and think maybe it's going to be okay. I got out because I care about saving myself now. Scientists actually call this interpretation bias. And it's something that most, a lot of anxious people have where we just literally see, we will see the glimmer of anger on someone's face or something. Or like when my husband is being quiet, you know, I don't think he's tired. I think he's mad at me. I mean, yes, sometimes he is. That's true. <laughs> but there is this, this, this bias towards the negative, I think, that a lot of people with anxiety. And actually, and we also see more peril in the world. There's something called attention bias to threat where we literally, you know, people who are, who have anxiety disorders, when sort of negative stimuli, like a, like an angry face is, is flashed, even so quickly that we can't consciously process it, we will respond more quickly than someone who does not have struggle with anxiety. There's a lot of math that goes on constantly, I feel like, to protect yourself from situations. At least it does for me. If I'm walking down the street and I see somebody's about to cross here, I figure out how to veer my body so we don't run into each other, so our bags don't smack into each other. If I'm if I'm driving, this, the same sort of thing is these constant calculations. I'm very, very aware of where my body is in space, whether, and it usually has to do with transit, whether it's walking, mm-hmm. being on the train, being in a car. I don't want to inflict my carelessness on somebody else so it's a matter of staying in my own shell and not disrupting somebody else's life but my brain is constantly doing you know geometry basically to make sure that i don't disrupt somebody else's world and i want to emphasize 
you know, this is more than just insecurity. That it's not just that you're insecure about failure, you're insecure about whether your husband is mad at you or not. And it's more than just because you're both women in the media industry in New York, you know, which is acknowledged as a high-pressure situation. But it's not just that. Anxiety is more than just those things. Well, anxiety is a normal human emotion. I mean, it's actually an essential human emotion. Anxiety is mo- motivating. It can, you know, it motivates us to study for tests and to prepare for retirement. So, so a certain amount of anxiety is actually good. But once you get to where we've both been, it, it's, it's paralyzing. And so there's a difference between, and anxiety is actually layered over this ancient sort of threat detection system that all, you know, organisms, most organisms have to keep us alive. And the fight or flight response is something that's critical. But what, when it becomes a disorder is really what it's, I mean, I think most therapists would, and, and the DSM also, which is you know, the sort of diagnostic Bible for mental health professionals, when it becomes impairing, when it prevents you from doing what you want to do when you want to do it. It's great to be scared of things. We should be. We should be frightened of grizzly bears. We should be frightened of falling off of cliffs. We should, uh, you know, not wait until the last second to study for tests. These are good. These are natural. But being afraid of situational things isn't the same as somebody who's living with an anxiety disorder. That's an entirely different thing because it's not always rational. It's you're scared because you're scared because your your body is is wired for that. That is just the way your nerves, your your gut brain processes the world. So it's not necessarily you know, something where, you know, hey, you know, this this situation that would make anybody nervous is happening. It's because you see that situation and frame it in a really particular way. And uh, it often has this physical manifestation that is incredibly painful and debilitating. Often, like I'm a, I'm a tooth grinder, I'm a finger picker, I'm all of these things. And it makes it then, it, it, it snowballs because then it's harder to get things done when my body physically hurts from, from anxiety. And this is something that you've known almost all your life. You know, you write a lot about your family history, particularly, you know, you know, dealing with a lot of the cruelty in elementary and junior high school, but also your family situation at home, particularly with your mother. You know, it was a very hard environment for somebody who was already, you know, showing the early steps of anxiety disorder. This is true. The um, research that I had done indicated that there's not necessarily a proven genetic link for anxiety, but it's very likely that depressed parents will have anxious children because you're in this state of having to take care of a situation. My mother is physically and emotionally unwell, and our entire household was calibrated over worrying about her, her well-being, and if we were going to upset her at any given point. So we learned to live in tiptoe and in startle because we really mustn't make anything sort of worse for her. I think that's where I get that whole not making it worse for, you know, somebody's physical trajectory because we were sort of taught that primary thing. And at the same time, you know, my, my dad has a certain amount of anxiety too. You know, if, if you are married to somebody who's got all of these conditions, you want your, you know, I have a sister too. You want your daughters to be safe and you want the woman who you love, who you pledged your life to be okay as well. And you try to make the softest nest you possibly can, but sometimes you're a nervous bird about, building it. So this is just how I learned to relate to the world. And it's been a big undoing and remaking of self to be with a fantastic man who didn't grow up in that particular way. You know, he's my favorite person in the world. I told him that every day and it took me years before I could completely unclench it and exhale. I think that he's not going anywhere. We are in a safe and lovely place and, and this is good and I don't have to worry. 
And that's something you must recognize as well, Andrea. Um, I mean, your immediate home situation was fairly stable, but your grandmother you write about. Right, um, right. I mean, the genetic piece is definitely, uh, twin studies show that 30 to 40% of the individual difference in anxiety disorders is related to genetic factors. And someone with an immediate family member has a risk factor five times that of the general population of having an anxiety disorder. So it's definitely partly genetic. And so when I got, when I was so sick in college and I was really, my thoughts immediately went to my grandmother, um, my father's mother, who was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. And she was, though that was kind of a catch-all diagnosis in the 1950s and 1960s. So it's unclear exactly what she would have been diagnosed with. But, you know, she was in a psychiatric facility for three years and was very, very ill her her entire life. So, so that... You know, I, I, I knew about that sort of genetic legacy, and then also it made me completely freaked out because I was like, is this just, you know, the first part of this slippery slope, and am I going to end up in the same place that she was? I want to circle back to, to something that, that Kat just said about finally ending up in a relationship with somebody in a safe, stable place, because it circles back to something that is going to be relevant for both of you. In Kat's case, she writes about how medication sort of helped bring once you went on medication for your anxiety it helped bring a clarity that allowed you to sort of like clear out a number of toxic relationships in your life and andrea writes about how medication doesn't cure the situation but it sort of provides again clarity to sort of like be able to step back and say like okay here's what's going on how do i deal with this what do i do I feel like it, for me, it like gives me, it gave, it gave me, you know, when my anxiety was at such a fever pitch that there really wasn't room for anything else. So the idea that, you know, I could even work on it in any way, like, I, you know, when, when I was so sick, I, I was just, I mean, especially for me, anxiety is such a whole body experience. It's incredibly physical. So I li- really felt like, you know, I was dying or going crazy. So, I mean, I, you know, in terms of, and, and I actually did ultimately, you know, when I was in college, I actually got better without medication. I got better um, just with cognitive behavioral therapy. I, I moved to medication in my late 20s. And this was when I had a relapse and it was actually spurred by, a, by an ocular migraine where I literally lost a chunk of my vision and it just spiraled into a, a sort of hypochondriacal, just all these worries about my health. I was convinced that something was wrong with my you know, that I, my brain and my memory. And I, but at this point, I had a job as a junior reporter at the Wall Street Journal. I had a, was in a relationship with, you know, someone that I really cared about. And I just, I knew, you know, when I was in college and I had this, I had a breakdown, I dropped my classes and I, you know, went back home and hung out on my parents' sofa. But I'm like, there's no time out sort of in the, in the working world. So, so that was, I just, I, I realized like, you know, I was so afraid. I'm like, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to have to leave New York and I'm going to lose my relationship. And so I, I was afraid to take medication because I was just felt so physically vulnerable. I was afraid of what it might do, even though I knew at that point that, you know, probably monkeying with my neurotransmitters would probably be a good thing. Um, but, but I was still afraid to do it, but I, I, re- I really felt like I had no choice. And so, but yes, for me, it, it really, it's just basically like turn the volume down on the, on the worrying to a place where there was actually space enough in my brain that I could actually do the work of 
you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and just kind of basic self-care. I'd always been a CBT person as well. And then I went through a a breakup that was incredibly difficult because the person involved had lied so Mm. much about his identity and everything that made me feel stable in the world. And it was, it was again, a combination of uh, anxiety and depression. And I was in a point where I could, I could just barely function. And I um, started taking this particular medication for the first time ever in my life. I, this, I was in my early thirties. I, for the first time ever in my life, I was able to walk about without the physical manifestations of anxiety that I'd had my entire life. I didn't know how it was to be in the world without having a nervous stomach, without feeling like I was going to throw up all of these things. It was the first time ever that I had been able to deal with relationships and deal with situations where I wasn't just trying to mitigate the horrible sick stomach, where I would just do anything to mollify this situation, even if it wasn't in my best interest, just because I knew it would make something stop. This person wouldn't be mad at me or something, and, you know, would lead to problems later down the road. And that was great until it wasn't. And this medication, eventually I was on it and they were sort of upping the dosage for a while. I was really not loving the side effects. It made me gain weight. It made me dizzy and have brain sparks, the zaps, if I missed it by 45 minutes or so. So I eventually went off it and I have never felt closer to death in my life. It took me a good solid nine months to come off this medication and I didn't think I was going to make it through. It was just absolutely hell on earth with, uh, with that. I this constant vertigo and nausea and nightmares. And it it was really a terrible situation to the point where I can't really take any medication now because I'm afraid that's going to happen again. Recently, a doctor convinced me to take the occasional beta blocker. And I have this other uh, doctor who um, prescribed this fantastic herbal thing called L-theanine that I get sent to me from Amazon once a month and it's, or I get it at the hippie store and it's really a great thing. But as for pharmaceuticals, I, I know they could help me. I know this for a fact. The, the fear of what has happened and what could happen is too strong to outweigh any benefit they could have for me. Though I absolutely support anybody who needs medication, who is prescribed. I think it saves lives and I think people each are going to have their own uh, responses to it. So I never want to shame anybody away from taking theirs. It's just not the solution for me. That That's an important thing to emphasize is that there is yeah. no one solution. No. To, everybody <laughs> sort of has, and everyone, everybody and who, who It's has, not just that there's no one solution for one person, but there's also no one solution. Even, even, I mean, at different times in my life, I've, I've, I've reached for different things. So it, it, can, it can sort of vary over the course of one's life as well, what, what works and what doesn't. Yeah, and it must also feel like at times that everybody has a solution that they're ready to to, like, oh, to yeah, offer you, yeah. unbidden. Well, I mean, I think the one thing is, I'm hoping if I'm doing anything with this book, I mean, one of the things is that anxiety can actually, you know, it is not a moral failing. It actually can be a disorder, and and you know, just just relax, just go on vacation, or I mean, that might help someone who's like mildly stressed out, but it's not going to cure an anxiety disorder. I think both of you write about how like meditation doesn't really do anything for either of you. (laughs) I mean, I really, I mean, I've read all the research on mindfulness and meditation, and I know that it is really helpful for a lot of people. I just suck at it. I mean, I just really am not good at it, and I really wish I was. Um, For me, I mean, though, Yoga, I love, and and that people call it a moving meditation. So I I, I do because that basically anything that grounds you know for me anything that grounds me in the, in the present moment. And when I'm having 
a very tough time. I, I need to reach for medication, not just an SSRI, sort of, you know, but also a benzodiazepine. Um, you know, I carry clonopin in my bag. Yes, there are issues with, I mean, some, you know, there are definitely issues with addiction and abuse with those medications. I've never, I, I don't necessarily take it often, but I, but having it there is, is just sort of the security blanket, uh, but I know if, if I need it. But, um, but in easy years, even, you know, that's, you know, yoga is incredibly helpful for me. Meditation, when I'm able to do it, baking, that I find incredibly sort of grounds me in the present moment. I do a lot of breathing in three, mm. into the nose, out through the mouth, yeah. and yeah. repeat it in as often as needed. And I find like talking with other people about it, not sort of like a, hey, I'm feeling anxious kind of thing, but doing advocacy uh, mm. really, really helps me a lot. So I, I do I have a website called Chefs with Issues, where I sort of open up conversation about the intersection of restaurant life and mm. mental health. And if I'm feeling really in a particular spiral, I'll go and work on that website or have conversations with people who have reached out. Because it really, I, I realize my own stuff dissipates if yeah. I can sort of lose it in the cloud of, of all of that. You know, when I, I, I had written an, an essay a few years ago that went viral, that was the thing that changed everything for me was knowing I wasn't the only one. I lived this life in isolation for such a long time. I thought of myself as a nervous person. I didn't, I, I, I didn't want anybody to know this thing about me. It was a shameful thing. Yeah. I would miss life because of it. I would not be able to go to the store. I couldn't go to a party. I couldn't do any of these things. And I was ashamed to say like, well, you know, I actually couldn't get through my front door today. So, you know, here's why I missed your party. And I would hurt people's feelings because of that. And I couldn't live with that anymore. And so I, you know, I refer to this as a coming out process. Telling people that you have this mental illness gives you license to talk about it. And even more, it gives other people license to talk about it as well. Well, and that, for me, you know, just seeing all these little lights flicker on in the darkness has has lit up my world. And I know I'm not the only one. And I know if I'm feeling something, there are a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million people out there who are feeling the same thing that that I do. We're not freaks. We're not broken. We're not bad people. We are not flakes. We are not any of these things. We're just wired in this particular way, and we are legion. You talk about how that that moment came about, that viral essay. This is connected to the fact that you have a site called Chefs with Issues because in your day job, you write about food. You, you're a food journalist. And you there's a really interesting moment where you talk about how, as a food journalist, so much of what you do is celebrating stuff that people love, happy communal experiences. It's like, oh, we all love chocolate or we all love, like, yeah, this dinner or, like, going to... And you talk about how, like, okay, once you've established that rapport with an audience about, like, okay, let's, you know, share all this great stuff that we enjoy in common that you 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 that's when you felt the comfort to be able to say it's like you know what this is not such a feel good moment but it's who i am and you know i hope we've been together long enough that you can accept this side of me yeah i mean i'm i'm a bummer sometimes but it, you know hopefully you know in a way that invites uh conversation but you know i I realized this was a thing in, in the food world because I started being really open about my own things. And I would be interviewing a chef, you know, when it was at CNN, when it was a tasting table, whatever it was. And we would maybe change in tapes, something, and they would say, like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, and they would start telling me about their depression, their anxiety, whatever it happened to be, or somebody in their kitchen. That happens once or two. So you think, like, okay, good. They, you know, they, they're, they're going through that twice like okay yeah maybe i'm a trusted person and it started happening more than half the time 
it, it, I realized there needed to be a conversation about this because this is a particular profession where they are in the business of, you know, there's that whole metaphor of the swan where they're gliding gracefully along the water and everything is turning and paddling down below. That's what's happening in the restaurant world. It draws people who have you know, all kinds of, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, you know, all, all kinds of things because it's an environment where, you know, you just have to get the, the tasks done and it's okay. They don't care that you've been to jail or the hospital or, you know, whatever it is. Um, that's your those are your people in there who are willing to accept you so long as you can do the work. So it draws that, but it also has this other aspect where then, you know, it's a brutal work environment. And then at the end of it, everybody goes out and has a drink and then another and then another, and it's four in the morning and you have to be up for your shift. And then you maybe medicate in a particular way. And uh, the profession has ended up in a, in a place of, of, of trouble. And these are the people who I love. These are the people I interact with. And I wanted a corrective for it. So, you know, it turned out it was this chicken egg thing and I just want to break the egg open and, have us all sit around and talk about it. And I, I think, I, I think, I pray it's it's working. Andrea, you weren't necessarily confronting your own issues directly as a Wall Street Journal reporter, because partly because the the structure of the job didn't necessarily give you the opportunity to talk about your own experiences directly. But it feels like you you write about how you used that opportunity, particularly when you were covering the health sector to confront a lot of the things that you were most scared of through your writing. Right. I Sometimes I, I, I think of my work as sort of continual exposure therapy. I mean, sometimes, I, actually, my, my primary care doctor asked me, he's like, you know, why did you decide to be a journalist? And especially, you know, not, but also, you know, I was a beat reporter for a long time, and um, I covered technology in the during the tech boom in the late 90s, and I was constantly afraid of being beaten on a story. I opened up competitors' papers with, you know, dread, thinking that I was going to, you know, see something that I should have had. Um, you know, I, I have to cold call strangers, some of whom do not want to talk to me. But and but so so just just the kind of process of it as well. I mean, there's sort of rejection. There's deadlines. Also, you know, having to perform. You know, right? You know, which which uh, all can be very anxiety producing. I've also kind of deliberately sort of used it to get close to things that really scared me the most like death and dying you know because you know my you know my sort of panic disorder is part of that I you know, when I had a panic attack I would like literally feel like I was dying but also a lot of my sort of fears were around sort of illness and physical vulnerability and so for, for a while I was covering hospice and end-of-life care and I started spent because I I actually decided I'm like you know what what am I afraid of and is, is there some way I can get more comfortable with the idea of death and so I I actively pursued those stories and that was actually really helpful because first of all I was just amazed at how generous people were you know to let me into their lives you know during this, this time where they didn't they didn't have much time left and I was able to see that because when I when I envisioned sort of what death was like I. It was almost like sort of the ultimate panic attack. Like I just, I just felt it's like pain, physical pain, mental pain, and fear. You know, I realized that it wasn't always that way. I mean, that that, that there was also connection and intimacy and you know other. I'm not, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not and it's sure, certainly a lot of my my encounters were not so uplifting. I mean, you know, there were pretty pretty harrowing stories but but it it got me just to a place where i just felt like i couldn't confront some of the issues like this i mean i did you know and then i you know i was not open 
about my disorder at work at all. And after 9-11, I covered the anthrax attacks in New Jersey. I cannot think of a story more tailor-made to freak out an anxious person than, you know, this person sending white powder through the mail that could be lethal when inhaled. And so um, that was, I, I did have sort of my kind of lowest sort of professional moment was when I was covering those attacks and I was driving back and forth to New Jersey where one of the, the post office where some of these letters had come through and um, had a massive panic attack, ended up in the emergency room, told the people that I, I think I, I you know, that, that I was covering anthrax. They, I think they heard that I might have anthrax. I was actually thrown out of the ER and met by a truck with a guy in like an orange hazmat suit. <laughs> So, because obviously everyone was jumpy then. I mean, it was you know post nine eleven. It was it was a uh, it was a jumpy time. It is a jumpy time now too. <laughs> right, right. Well, I I think I mean historically, there's always been a reason. You know, well, I think for people to be anxious. Yeah. But yeah. which takes us back to that idea that the heightened awareness of threats and and, and fears and dangers that, uh, as you say, it feels like this is a, a a time more particular than others in which those those kind of inciting moments sort of spring to the foreground. I am hearing from so many people who have never suffered from anxiety in their life, and now they are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people have, have said, you know, I never knew what you were going through, and now I, I wake up in horror. I look to see what's been tweeted. I, you know, pe- people telling me that they are they are hyper aware. My husband, who is not usually an anxious person, was, uh, you know, during some of the negotiations with North Korea has, you know, sort of been on edge about these things uh you know i'm always you know it's i I fly a lot i I travel a lot and i i see people seeming extra jumpy on airplanes and and i think people are trying not to transmit this to their kids i think people are much more conscious of anxiety than they used to be i mean not that not people have it necessarily more often but i think the conversation has opened up about how people talk about it more Mm -hmm. and are incredibly conscious about what how they're trying to communicate all of this to their kids right now and i you know that's got to be i'm I'm not a mother myself and i know you are and i know that that's got to be a really delicate balance to how you know there, there's so much going on in the world is undeniable. And how are you able to raise a kid who is processing all of this in an emotionally healthy way? You know, I, I, I know I'm, I'm just so interested in that. I don't necessarily have a, I, I think we're, I think I'm winging it. Like probably like, sure you're doing a good job. <laughs> I'm sure you're doing a great job of it though. <laughs> I mean, we try to sort of ration our NPR list. I mean, we, you know, we listen to NPR all the time and, you know, have, you know, have it on, kind of on the background. And if there's a particularly distressing story, we try to, to touch on. My daughter's eight. So, you know, she's sponge. Um, yeah, she, she is. But I do think, I mean, the one thing I think no matter where you are in the political spectrum, and one thing is uh, the people who are anxious have an intolerance for uncertainty. And I think no matter where you are in the political spectrum, I think we can all sort of agree that this is a pretty uncertain time. And especially as we don't know what's going to happen to our health care throughout. Yeah, that's actually like a real important thing because <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're only just now within recent years at a point where mental health including anxiety disorders, has gotten the level of attention from the healthcare industry that it really requires and needs. And for people who may have gone for years without proper treatment and are, you know, have finally been able to get proper treatment, the threat of that treatment becoming less available, it must be palpable. It's cruel. 
it's, is, is what it is. People are up against more terrors and stresses. And I don't want to be too political here, but I, I don't see a level of compassion coming from this particular regime in a way where this would be prioritized. There is lip service given to the care of people in the military and God, they deserve incredible treatment. I mean, the, the rates of, of, PTSD, depression, anxiety, all, all of, all of these things are so phenomenally high, tremendously, you know, elevated suicide rates. And the fact that anybody who is in that particular situation would be made to worry about if they're going to be getting health care or not is absolutely galling and sickening and worrying. And, and I frankly think we have, as a country should be worried about this. Uh, if worry makes us fight in this case, I think it is something that is, is very worth fighting for. I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know if it's going to take showing more faces of what this actually looks like, that it looks like any one of us along the street. You can't, you know, pick it out as, you know, you couldn't pick the anxious person out of the crowd. You can't pick the mentally ill person, you know, out of the crowd. I am worried for all of us in this particular case. Well, it used to be that mental health treatment was treated differently than uh, treatment for other ailments because it wasn't covered at the same level by insurance companies. And so I know people are very worried that that would, that that would, and, and so, so because of that, um, you know, some people may have felt that their only choice was maybe medication because, you know, a, a therapy, a, you know, a therapy appointment might have been only covered at 50% versus, you know, much higher so I think people are definitely very concerned about what that, you know, what that would, if, if going back to before there was sort of parity, sort of what's called for mental health issues. The thing that I have seen an upswing in is um, empathy among people, that people are willing to talk with each other. I, you know, I hear from a lot of strangers uh, who reach out and, and are kind and I try to reach back. I see throughout um, all of this uncertainty that has happened lately, people, I know that there are people who are being much harsher with each other, but I also think I have seen an upswing in people asking each other how they are doing and being willing to accept the answer. This is a conversation that I see, uh, I read a lot of YA literature, that the, it is covered more and more in a frank and, and wonderful way at a, at a younger and younger age in a way that, God, that would have saved me as an anxious, you know, 12, 13-year-old to know that I wasn't the only one. I think we are only going to see more of that, to see humanity reflected in the stories that we write, the music that we listen to, the, the, the movies that we see, all of these things. And I really, really hope that in the face of all these things that are happening, we're showing our best selves. Well, I do think it's definitely true that stigma is, um, that, that is, is decreasing, which I think is a terrific thing. And I really noticed that. Um, I've actually you know, written quite a few in the last several years mental health stories in the Wall Street Journal and particularly about uh, college mental health. Um, because, I mean, unfortunately, the rates of anxiety and depression um, do seem to be growing among young people, particularly college students, for various reasons. But one of the things is, is that there is this real sort of mental health activism on college campuses. That's pretty exciting to see, you know, groups like Active Minds and the Judd Foundation. And, um, you know, students are really, and I'm always amazed that, you know, they, they let me use their names and their photographs and stories of their of their mental health issues in in the paper and online and um you know they're, they're pretty open about it and i and i you know I'm, I'm hopeful that that you know as they've sort of changed their their campuses you know along with you know some empathetic adults you know that they will also change our workplaces because i think that's probably the next frontier is that i think people are still 
pretty tight-lipped about these kind of issues in the workplace. And since we both sort of come out of the closet on right, this yeah. one, too, like, if you hire me, you know what you're getting. Um, though, actually, the, the job I had before this one, it, I was in a strange situation where my boss, who, who knew that, you know, I was had written this book or was writing yeah. this book, I said I was going off to therapy. And I got, after it, I got a note from him saying, like, please don't talk about them in the office. And I, it was all this really, and I, it was, and I was thinking technically that's probably a workplace violation, like from him, but it was really strange. But my current place of employment, like I, I was, I couldn't believe that CNN was like so willing to have me do this. And I mean, the thing that happened with, I wrote a, wrote a few essays about this is they would go up the chain through legal and everything like you have to, but I would start getting notes along the way from my editor, from the copy editor, from whoever else. And you think in this big, tough news organization that, you know, people would be steely and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh dear God, more emotions, you know, on the surface. You, you have to, you have to put on your, you know, emotional flak jacket when you go into work, but then you have to go and put put it all somewhere, everything that you see in process. I, I worked with a lot of people with PTSD from covering 9-11 or, you know, had been, you know, out in, in the field in, in various places who had to do that. And, you know, that was an astonishing thing. So they encouraged me to be really public about this. They let me hold public conversations about it via that medium. And that's extraordinary. And my current workplace, um, my boss, who sadly recently left, she was phenomenal. Um, the day after the election went around to each one of us and had a little chat to just see how we were doing. That's, and I think, and she is a lot younger Younger than I am, and this makes me hope for the future in a really huge way. Now, Andrea, as we're having this conversation, you're still a week or two away from publication. Two weeks, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but two weeks from today. Yes. But less than a week ago, again, as we're having this conversation, you had an excerpt from the book in the Wall Street Journal, which that's is right, on Saturday. On Saturday, which is yeah. in a way a sort of that sort of like coming out to to the Wall Street Journal audience, and also right, right. and also probably for many of your coworkers, I think. So. I mean, many of my coworkers have known I've been working on this book for a while, and they, you know, incredibly, the journal was incredibly supportive, gave me time off to work on the book, and so I felt like I, but yeah, but rest as a more public, you know, obviously as a, I have not written about, I had not written about it at work at all, you know, publicly at all, and I've actually, I think I've only done two first-person pieces in my entire career, so this is a very big departure for me to, to do a memoir. I, I'm not an essayist, I'm a I'm a reporter, and uh, so yeah, so this was. I'm so excited for you. This <laughs> <laughs> thing, but I, you know, it's not you know because I I was kind of bracing myself for the comments because you know there there are still people who really see mental health issues as or mental illness as a moral failing as a weakness. I was I was bracing myself for those comments, and you know there were some, but most of them were incredibly um, supportive and um, and empathetic, and it was great to see people engaging each other in the comments on that piece as well. It's just incredible engagement. And then one of the the particular aspects about writing memoir, Kat and I were talking about this when we met downstairs before we all started talking, is um, you know writing about previous relationships yes. where the, the other person, there was not a full awareness of the situation then, and then sort of like hearing back, or not hearing back as the case may be, from those people. I actually interviewed several of my ex-boyfriends. And who, you know, I mean, the ones I may still have a friendship with or whatever. And that was actually really eye-opening to see, to really, because we hadn't necessarily had the conversation about about how this impacted their life, you know, my anxiety and how, and or my, how it affected perhaps their perception of the dissolution of the relationship. It's, it was wild. 
<laughs> it's it's pretty t- I'm looking on good terms with with most of my exes there's just the one who uh, who yeah. maybe yeah. less so but and and I struggled with how to handle that and I thought well I I, I tried to be as honest and empathetic with every single person as as I could be. There were several friendship relationships and things that I completely left out of the book because I thought there is no good way to do this. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt saying that they acted the best way they knew how to at that particular time. And maybe that's a little generous in some cases, but... So far as I know, I haven't lost any friends over it or anything. My dad actually told me beforehand he wasn't going to read it because he didn't want to, and he's so supportive and wonderful, and he didn't want to think of me as being in pain like that. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand that. My mother, uh, she's suffering from a lot of dementia and things like that, so I think she was aware that I was having, you know, writing a book, but there's no way she could understand or comprehend it. And I just, I tried to tell the story, all the stories with love, tell the best truth that I knew how to do about it, have some gut checks, you know, with people and, you know, talk it out if it was going to be a little bit, uh, you know, difficult. I just tried to be fair overall. And I thought if I knew that I was, was being fair, it was, then it was going to be okay. And so far <laughs> it's been okay. I mean, my, I don't know, my, my, my parents have read it. My sister, you know, I pretty much had all the actors except maybe one or two that are, the names are changed, um, read it. And, and I, yeah, I've only gotten pretty, pretty generous, good feedback of it. And, you know, my aunt, you know, she shared some incredibly painful stories of um, her mother, my grandmother. My dad was quite young, I think, when she when she got sick, so my aunt had the most sort of vivid memories. I think my parents were a little bit, my mother was definitely worried. I think, that, you know, they wished they had done more, I guess, for me mm-hmm. at the time. I, mean, I think they did. Because I was not diagnosed for a year, like I was, I was went through this whole medical odyssey because because my symptoms were so physical. You know, doctors thought I might have multiple sclerosis or brain tumor. Was you know, I mean, it was it was chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, it was it was really um, no one even thought of. I mean, I even you know, uh, mental health issues. I ended up in the ER. I mean, I, I would hope to think that we're more um, aware now, and or that or I would have just gone. You know, the internet and, and diagnose myself. I mean, that could have happened, but um, so I think they, they, I guess, had wished that they, you know, someone, them, or someone else had maybe identified it sooner. Yeah, that's actually something you write about at the very beginning where you talk about like the privileges that you had of growing oh, up in a loving yeah, home in a safe right, neighborhood. And right. you say, yeah, those privileges didn't keep you from falling apart, you say, but you know that how critical they were right. in putting you back together. You know, there's a lot of things that sort of raise the risk, anxiety disorders and, you know, childhood trauma, you know, overprotective and controlling parenting. I, I didn't have any of that. So I really, actually, that's, that's one thing I, I struggled with sort of more as an adult is thinking like, what do I have to be anxious about? I mean, I, compared to so many people in this world, I've had a pretty charmed life. So to, to not, to, to feel shameful about my anxiety, that it was, that I deserved to feel the way I felt. And I, I, I have, it was important to me to acknowledge, like I'm a straight, cisgendered, married white woman with access to healthcare and a good job and a home. And I still have all of this. And so it's yeah. important to me to talk about this because if I'm feeling this, 
oh my God, anybody who doesn't have one of those things deserves to have all of the care and goodness that I have. And so if we can start this conversation to make it a little bit easier for somebody else down the road to talk about it, to normalize it, I was thinking like, okay, I'll take that hit. I don't care if somebody thinks I'm crazy. I don't think it, you know, I, I don't care what they think of me. If uh, you know, the, the language that we're using, the conversations that we're normalizing are going to help somebody else who doesn't feel like they would be taken seriously at work or get to keep their job or have a mental health day or be loved. If, if they know that, you know, they, they deserve these things and that they're not only one out there and it's, and it's okay and it's normal and stuff like that. I think if we can, we can start these conversations, it's going to make it easier for everybody. Or at least that's my hope. Now, both of you your day jobs involve writing all day, writing and reporting and all that, around which you've both found the time to write an entire book. Having done that once before, are you at all interested or intending to do it again? <laughs> the next book proposal I'm working on is an entertaining book. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, so, that's great that you're already, you're already back in there. And, well, and yeah. with a with a partner, too, that, like with, okay. with one of my best friends, because we had been... I don't know what to do with myself if I'm not completely overburdened. So, uh, you know, we'd been tossing around this notion, and I had him sign on with my agent, so we're, we're playing around with the notion. It would mean we would get to throw parties. And then I'm toying with the notion of insomnia as well because I suffer from that <laughs> like I was telling these lovely people in the room with me I've slept 55 minutes last night so yeah I I feel like it's a little premature for me to figure out about the, the next book right now since this one isn't even out yet mm -hmm. and I also think my family would really uh, I, I, they deserve a break from from my, my my daughter said to me this is a few months ago she said mama I've been waiting for you to be done with this book for two years since I was five she actually just turned eight, so this was a few months ago before she had turned eight. But yeah, so I feel like I, I need to, to be around a little bit more and focus on that for a little bit. So before I sign up for another book, I feel like I've got to get the whole family on board because <laughs> it is a whole family experience. I will say there was, it was really important to me with my husband. We had a conversation at the start of it where I said, okay, we have to have some rules here because I know that I'm going to get deep into this and I want you to feel like I'm still a present and supportive partner. So, you know, we were, you know, both worked full-time jobs and I was doing it on top of it. So I said, you know, I'm going to be off in my little writing hole, like usually outside of, of our house writing longhand because that way I couldn't get on Twitter. And, uh, and I said, so you have the right absolutely to tell me, come home for dinner. I need to see you tonight. If you felt like I was drifting, like I was somehow not being there, not being supportive, and so you absolutely have the right to call me on that and say, like, come home. And that was really, I, I couldn't have done it without that. So the two books are On Edge, A Journey Through Anxiety by Andrea Peterson, just out from Crown. By the time that you hear this, it'll just be mm -hmm. out. And then High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves by Kat Kinsman, published by Day Street Books. You know, we have been talking about their life stories and their experiences and there is still a lot in each of these books that we have not had a chance to cover so i encourage you to check them out i also encourage you to go to itunes and subscribe to the life stories podcast and also maybe review it and throw a couple stars at it as well the more you do that uh, the easier it becomes for other people to find the podcast and by subscribing you'll also know when new episodes go up online as well i'm ron hogan Thank you for listening today, and I hope you'll join me again for another conversation soon. Take care.